Hey guys, welcome to Fuck Small Talk. I'm your host, Mariah Joe, life and recovery coach. I have my master's in sociology and a few certifications in nutrition and behavioral health. I'm also a certified peer recovery specialist, which is a fancy way of saying I use my own experience with addiction and mental health to help others heal too. And I'm here to say fuck that, to fake fluffy talk for the sake of fitting in. You don't need to fit in, you belong. Let's dive into this week's big talk topic. Okay, so I'm here with Nick Terry. Hi, Nick. Aloha. We uh, we uh, see that it says TNT on your Zoom. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, what? Tell us a little bit about TNT. TNT, my original initials, so Timothy Nicholas Terry. Oh, okay. So growing up, I grew up in a bit of an urban culture, playing basketball and doing hip hop music, and so a lot of us have these like monikers, mm-hmm. names. And TNT stuck because it was my initials. So people would always call me TNT. And then that was my stage name when I would rap do, and do music. So awesome. <laughs> over the years, as I got older, in particular, getting sober, the TNT moniker uh, faded away a bit with the different lifestyle choices. And yeah. so I recently got married. And my wife's last name is Tran. So. It was, it's an interesting story, but she didn't want to follow the normal patriarchal take the man's name. And I'm not a traditional person either in that way. We did get married legally. Um, and so she had mentioned we should change our names to Timothy Nicholas TNT and Paulina TNT. And I said, okay. And the TNT stands for Terry and Tran. Oh my God. So it has a couple different meanings there was a time in my life when I was younger where people would say do you know Nick Terry because I've always gone by my middle name which is interesting too and they would say I don't know Nick Terry and and if you said do you know TNT they would say absolutely of course I've known TNT (laughs) for a long time so now that the book came out if if you see the book it it says Nick Terry TNT yes so that's that's uh and it might just be TNT. When I sign the books and when we're uh, doing some events around the book, I, I do sign it TNT now, which That's is an awesome. interesting thing, signing books. <laughs> well, I had to ask. Like, I, I don't usually ever see an acronym like that. And when I do, it's usually someone's like credentials or schooling or something. So I'm like, what is this? Yes. But I want to hear a little bit more about the book. The book is broken into three parts. And shout out to Legacy Launchpad publishing. Um, They are the ones who helped me write the book, launch it, package it, brand it, and they're phenomenal. Anna David runs that company. She's an author. She's also a sober person in recovery long-term. Her first book, Party Girl, is how we burst it onto the scene. And um, But we had decided that I would tell my story first. So the book is broken into three sections. It's my recovery journey, eight universal spiritual principles, which I think are important for recovery, and then nine different breathwork practices and how to do them and why I think those are important. So the story is what leads, which which is my recovery story. And so um, in a snapshot, I grew up 
um, around a lot of drugs and alcohol as, as, a, as a child. And so my mother had me when she was 18. She was very young. Both my parents divorced. And my mom was just a, a kid. She was, she was 18, 19, 20 years old when I was, when I was just a toddler. Uh, her and my dad divorced very early, and both of them have struggled with mental health and substance abuse challenges their entire life. And so for me, I, growing up in that environment, there was a lot of um, challenges. People would call it childhood trauma, abandonment. I like to think of ever since I was really young, I was really confused. And I've, this underlying feeling of being separate, different, and alone okay. was the theme of that. I was an only child. So a lot of things that were happening in my environment, I didn't talk about. I went to 13 different schools before I was expelled from 10th grade. Wow. So we moved around a lot. And a lot of times when I tell people that, they say, oh, you must have grown up in a military family. Mm-hmm. And I said, no, it wasn't. <laughs> we just moved a lot. And it's like um, the Pacific Northwest. Yes. I was born in Eugene, Oregon. We moved up to Seattle, Washington when I was about four years old. Um, my mom had a boyfriend that was in this rock and roll band and thought if they go to the big city of Seattle, that they could become famous. And so I went up there with my mother and I was an only child. And so um that was the start of that in Seattle. And we moved around a ton and bounced around quite a bit. And so um, keeping secrets became a part of my life. And it wasn't a, it was an unspoken thing. Nobody sat me down and said, hey, you know, we don't talk about this stuff here. Right. It was an unspoken message. So I started keeping secrets at a young age. I write about this in a book. I start to at a young age tell a lot of stories that weren't true making up alternate realities about who my father was since my dad wasn't around I would tell the kids at school that my dad was a professional NBA basketball player I was pretty (laughs) good at basketball and if, if you grew up in Seattle we had the Seattle Supersonics and there was one of the best players was this white dude I was smart enough to, to say that the, the player was white. That was my father, which was, which was smart. And his, and his name was Tom Chambers. And, and I said to the kids, my dad's Tom Chambers. And they said, no, he's not. Dad, you're lying. He's not your dad. And all the way, and, and I took this lie all the way to the teachers, the teacher, the kids would ask. We were young. I mean, this is like nine years old. And, yeah. and they said, Miss White, Tom Chambers is not Nick's dad. Miss White said, what? She was confused. And, and I said, yes, it is. It is my dad. And I rode this lie all the way out. Like I, I leaned into it. And that's the way I was for some reason. And there was a parent-teacher conference. And my mom and her boyfriend at the time came to it. And the kids asked my mom, is Tom Chambers Nick's dad? Right? Yeah. And she goes, what? She was confused. She's like, Nick's dad lives in Eugene. And I still didn't confess to the lie. I said, this is like a secret society with the NBA. You can't tell people who's who. And um, and so I just, so that was interesting 
the dishonesty piece, lying about who my dad was, who my grandparents was, how many video games I had. I also started to do things like steal when I was young. Like I would walk into a store and take a little bit of candy or things like that. And it's interesting in the recovery world, there's a real emphasis on honesty. Honesty is a big one for me. And what I've discovered on my journey was, in fact, when I tell my recovery story, I talk about the honesty first, not the drinking and the using, because I think that's where it started. Keeping those secrets, I believe personally that there's something about the human condition, the spirit that wants to be transparent. We want to be open. We want to be able to tell our stories. And when you feel that you can't, speak freely and communicate what's happening that that's when this spiritual vacancy begins and from that you start to create these lies about who you really are because you feel inadequate to not be able to express who you are so that's when I started telling the lies that's when I started making these stories up and I never realized the connection between the two things And so in the 12-step program, the spiritual principle of the first step is honesty. And I never understood why that was important. And I thought all of my dishonesty was connected to my drinking and using. Mm -hmm. And my first spiritual advisor uh, asked me some questions. And he said, I want you to take a look all the way back. Go all the way back to the beginning. And I want to see if you can discover some dishonesty before you ever started drinking and using. And I had never considered that. And I go, oh my God, video game, lying about my dad, lying about how much money we had, lying about where we were from. And that continued when I moved to Hawaii, I was 18 years old. And so nobody knows you. I got to really recreate my life. And by that time, I'm a college graduate, right? And I'm, I never I never went to college, but I make these stories up <laughs> as I go because I feel so inadequate internally. Well, and, and so- And there's that shame, you know, like you mm-hmm. just kind of walk around with a sense of unworthiness. And like, if people only knew how I really am, they wouldn't want to be here, be my friend, have me around. They wouldn't like me. You know, and so like to to be able to not yes. really even understand where that's coming from, the only option is like, well, I don't want to feel this way, so I'm going to do something about it. Yes, absolutely. And I don't think it's a conscious yeah. thing. It's 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 a, it's a a trauma response. Yeah, it's something. At least for me, I I was unconscious that I was doing it um yeah that and that characteristic followed me throughout my whole my entire life that dishonesty piece or like feeling unworthy or what do you mean both uh both yeah the dishonesty piece because of exactly what you said feeling inadequate why else would you need to create these stories yeah exactly why, why else would you need to create these stories? And it's interesting because now when we when we speak this way and I talk about the trauma and I talk about being caught on camera in an establishment at 33 years old shoplifting, right? And when I tell these stories about 
almost dying in a car accident, blacking out behind the wheel and escaping and running to the gas station to realize I don't have a cell phone and I have to borrow a phone from a guy in the taxi cab to call my daughter's mother who comes down to pick me up and I'm hiding in the bushes as I can hear the sirens. And I completely annihilate my car. But I tell these stories and they're what, there are the stories that set us free. And the interesting part about the whole journey is, is when we have the courage and the vulnerability to share, that's what people, people want. That's what people are attracted to. So most of our lives we're hiding and we're not telling the truth and we're keeping secrets. In recovery, you'll hear People say you're only as sick as your secrets. Yeah. And so that's why I was so sick internally. And then I had to use the drugs to just to make myself feel okay. Drink just to make my, to calm this thing that I didn't even know I had. I think it's for me. I mean, I totally relate. It's like layers of shame. You know, for me, it was like, mm-hmm. um, you know, making things seem better than they were or the total opposite, making th- things seem not so bad. Um, you know, definitely with my addiction, trying to do like the, oh, it's only a few or I'm not doing that drug or, you know, whatever. Um, and then it was layering. So like, first Mm -hmm. of all, I felt inadequate. So I had to layer it with this drug. And then I had to lie about the fact that I was using that drug. Mm -hmm. And then I had to lie about the fact that I lied. Um, and it's just, it's, I don't know, a Mm -hmm. spiritual shit storm after months and years of that piling up. Absolutely. And that's, and that's a story I can tell you about the car accident. So I, there was many times when I thought to myself, this is, this is the time I need to stop. This is it. And so that car accident would have been a reasonable time. (laughs) I almost died in this accident. Um, I had been doing several different drugs and alcohol and had been up for a few days not sleeping and so this concoction I I blacked out this is on Maui where I blacked out was about 20 miles from where I had the car accident have you ever been to Maui before I've never no you bet okay so this particular road was on the west side from this area called Olawalu all the way to Ma'alaya and it's like this windy road around these cliffs where at any point you could just fly off and people have and uh and wow. you're talking three four five five hundred foot cliffs so i make it to this other side and i and i crash into this telephone pole but I, i'm sorry it's not a telephone pole it's a it's a it's the pole for the lights that go over the highway and it's a it's a big metal pole and, mm-hmm. and from that it goes the lights all the way across and it's like four in the morning crash my car the first thing i do is look for the drugs that i have consume some of those immediately and then throw the rest of them i run to the payphone i get a hold of my daughter's mother who by the way her ex-husband had died in a motorcycle accident so she's already lost her ex in an accident and I've been gone for three days. So I hadn't, I left like I did before. I just left. She gets this call after three days of me being MIA 
from this random number and I'm hiding in the bushes while the sirens are going. And this is, I ran, so this is a mile, but you could hear the sirens from where I was at. He picks me up, I escape this accident. And in my mind, I said, this is it. No more using, no more drinking. I'm going sober. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the pain of the detox and, and the feelings of, of coming off the drugs and the hangover. Within 24 hours, I had convinced myself that I just won't do Xanax. Yeah. Yeah. Right. The justification so I already right. start to manipulate myself. Right. Right. Okay. So it wasn't the alcohol. It was, I did those drugs. I stayed up on the other stuff and the Xanax seems to always make me black out. So it's clearly now, just the Xanax that was the problem. I just need to have a better protocol, <laughs> right? And those are the type of agreements that I would make with myself that would change. And one, one of my spiritual advisors says, you never have to justify or rationalize doing the right thing. And I'm the king of rationalization, justification. I'm a victim and, and some of these things. And so that's just a small snapshot of, of the way I would manipulate myself. So the dishonesty, it's not just like, hey, the sky is red when it's blue or, you know, that wasn't me. It was somebody else. But it's it's the lie is deeper. It's mm -hmm. It's the lie is, to your point, I can have a couple or I can I can um operate in this way right and so it's like my whole life had become a lie and and that was the hard part to really recognize not just like I'm telling lies but that my whole existence had been founded on dishonesty yeah like your identity and yes, how you know how to right. do like the next like how to even have a conversation with a stranger on the street. Like we're on autopilot to do it with lies. Mm -hmm. And the crazy part was, is I come up from this culture where I would tell people, I keep it real. I would say something like, I keep it real. I always keep it real. And, and the reality was, is, 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 um, is I, um, I was just lying to myself for a long time. And it's so hard to even recognize it, though. I mean, when I guess I'll speak for myself, but I was born and raised mm -hmm. in dysfunction like you. And it was, mm -hmm. um, you know, I had both my parents, but abuse is part of my story, um, domestic violence and just so much alcohol in the home. And it just mm -hmm. um, I didn't know any better, I guess. I didn't know any different. I knew that like the whole world didn't operate like that, but I didn't um, I couldn't see that I wasn't going to end up like that. It was just like, this is going like, mm -hmm. I don't know. It was just, it was literally autopilot. And so I didn't see that I was like mm -hmm. this terrible person making these terrible decisions. I was literally in this situation where I'm like, I don't know what else to do or I don't know who else to be. And that was really hard right. to try to like get out of, you know, like how do you start to reinvent yeah. yourself? <laughs> Some of us don't even attempt to, um, you know, seek real help out of Absolutely. it until we're, you know, yeah, until we're like years, you know, 30s, 40s, 50s. 
Sure. And some people never, right? I saw this one statistic because I also, I own a treatment center and I've worked in the field of mental health and substance abuse that only 10% of the people that need treatment, which I don't know how they would find that data, but people that need treatment, only 10% of them actually ever get it, right? So there's like 90% of people that are just out there functioning and Russell Brand had talked about that to where it's like I almost feel if you can make it through the life-threatening traumatic experience of being a chronic drug addict or a chronic alcoholic we're the lucky ones because people that aren't as acutely challenged but still drink every day use drugs, these type of things, have these toxic relationships, but somehow they can manage life. They're not ending up in hospitals. They're not ending up in in substance abuse treatment facilities. They're not ending up in jail cells. Sometimes they might, right? Sometimes. But it's like they live in this space to where it's like, it's not abundantly clear to them that this is not working. Or maybe it is, but as long as they can pay the rent, as long as they can keep some food on the table as long as they can keep a job then then they, then they continue on mm-hmm. and so although it was torture for me to go through the process of of getting clean and sober now that it's happened now that I'm clear on who I am it's the it's the biggest gift that's ever happened same. to me as well mm-hmm. yeah you never know who's going to get it. And that's the challenge is, is um, I think that the hard part for people in the outside world is that they want hard numbers. How many, what percentage of people are going to, are going to make it right. I'll have people that call the treatment centers. They want to send their family into recovery. And so what's your success rate, <laughs> right? And, and you say to yourself, well, how do you measure success? Yeah, because it's so unique. Like, yeah, is it abstinence? And by the way, what drugs are considered um, drugs that you can or cannot use? Um, Obviously, there's mood and mind altering substances. There's medications. There's people that Mm -hmm. do marijuana, or there's people that you know do a ton of caffeine and nicotine and all these things. And so, it really each person is uniquely different in regards to what their sobriety looks like. And so I think on top of that, and then on top of that, mental health challenges as well. Yeah. And as someone, that's like a really great segue that I was going to ask you about that. um, Just because something works for somebody in the first few months or years of their recovery, Mm -hmm. um, like for me, I was completely abstinent once I made the decision. Um, It took me a couple of months, Mm -hmm. but once I made the decision to not use weed, not use alcohol, absolutely Mm -hmm. nothing at all, um, besides caffeine, Mm -hmm. I guess, coffee was like my new DOC. Um, Then, I mean, it took me two years completely abstinent before I even made a decision to like, if I wanted to even like attempt like a CBD or anything like Mm -hmm. that. And I just think like, Yes, it's different for every single person, but yes, it also shifts as you grow. I mean, like, I hope that you grow and shift and change in your recovery. Mm -hmm. And I I hope that 
that allows you to make different choices as you move along. Maybe not with different substances. You know what I mean? Like people are yeah. sober and stay that way for their life. And that's phenomenal. Sure. You yeah. know, I just think like what works for you in the beginning might not work for yeah. you. Uh, and that goes for everything. Like, you know, maybe you're hitting the gym every single day in the beginning. And like, as years go on, you're like, you know, I've shifted and changed yeah. and other things work for me now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. So I write about that in the book a bit. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's an important subject. Um, because a lot of people in the 12 step community, uh, have this idea that, you know, total abstinence, right. And, and although people are well-intentioned, I think to your point, it's everybody has their own unique experience. And I know several people that have been in recovery for a while, needed it for a season to get through some traumatic events, to get through some unprocessed grief, to get through whatever. And then they went back to drinking here and there. And they're okay. These people are fine. Right. And right. that's not everybody's story, but that's theirs. The thing is, it's just trial and error for people. And I'm not ex telling people, hey, you should go drink or you yeah. should you should do this or that. But the, 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 the thing that I've realized, and I did this like my first five years of my sobriety, like I was more of like an evangelical, like, you know, 12 step person. Right. And I'm telling people how to live and what they should do. And I'm regurgitating all the information that I've heard at meetings. And this is how it is. And and now I'm coming up on 10 years and my perspective has changed a lot. It's changed a ton. And see, what I was doing before was, is I was projecting my fears and my life onto other people. Well, because I can't do this certain thing, nobody else can, right? And that's not sober. That's not appropriate. And this is how you need to do things. And it's, it's very short-sighted. It's very egoic. and um, so now I have stopped doing that. I've, I've, I've evolved in my own recovery. And in the breathwork community, there's a symbiotic relationship between the breathwork community and the psychedelic community, right? So there's, um, it's somehow they're just intermeshed. And so when I go to some of these retreats in these different places, like I'll ask people, when did you start doing breathwork? And they'll say, well, I first did ayahuasca when I was in Costa Rica. And <laughs> And I'm like, I asked you about breathwork, right? Yeah, like that. And, what I asked. Uh, there was even a girl that came over for one of our breathwork journeys the other day, and she goes, "Oh, I'm so scared because I think I might be purging. I might have to purge, like throw up and some of the stuff." I go, "This is not ayahuasca. This is a breathwork session." But it's 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 it was just interesting that there's this enmeshment between the two. But I've opened my mind in those areas as well. I think with such low recovery rates for substance abuse and mental health challenges that that we need to be open to as many paths to healing as possible, yes. right? And that's why I've fallen in love with the breath work and the cold plunging and the internal family systems and some of these other modalities because we need it. it what, 12 steps doesn't work for everybody. And I spent my first five years of recovery and working in the treatment field, trying to reshape and reframe the 12 steps to fit people's lives. Hey, yeah. you can use this word or you can take out that word and you don't have to listen to that part. Mm -hmm. And that's fine for certain people. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
but at some point it's like, well, or we can recreate new recovery paradigms or we can create new recovery spaces. And, and so that's what I think is important. And I remind people, I go, you know, these programs started with two people collaborating and, and just creating stuff organically. Right. And even in the 12 step community, there's references to things like create the fellowship that you create, that you crave, create the program that you want to be a part of. Yeah. Like you create right? your own reality and, and you create your life. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's so much room for, for different ways for people to heal mental health, for different ways for people to, to heal trauma and to create new pathways, new lifestyles. And so for me, I don't know what's going to work for everybody. And that's, and that's, the the approach that I've taken more recently. Yeah. Can I ask you, um, so you talked about mm-hmm. um about uh, a couple of years into your sobriety journey, you kind of felt this plateau or you kind of hit this wall with um mm-hmm. I, I totally relate. I'm like smiling and giggling over here like uh my first uh two years for sure. Um I was in a 12 step program and was very much like that was the right way. This was um the only way. It's totally yep. worked for me. I'm trying to get like all my family and friends to go to a meeting <laughs> and um to do the steps yeah. and, and all of those things. And then um you mentioned that you hit kind of a wall and had to do some things different. Mm-hmm. How did you recognize yeah. that you were hitting a wall? Um, because I th- I think a lot of times people tend to just go back to almost unconsciously revert back to habits that are just kind of filling a void when they start to hit that wall and don't feel very good in their recovery. Mm-hmm. How did you make the shift from like okay. 12 steps to like breath work or how'd you know? So it was pain. Pain is always the motivator for change for me. And so while I was first getting sober, my entire life changed. I did have a spiritual shift. Um, it was similar to a rebirth, if you would, in like the Christian community, being born again to this new life. I'm not Christian, but the 12-step program did create that for me. Uh, I got very involved in service, going to meetings. This community grew up around me. I felt like I belonged. That feeling of being separate, different, and alone shifted. I had that my whole life. And all of a sudden, I did feel like I belonged somewhere. And I started sharing things in a meaningful, open way. Started being of service to other people. Being more concerned with what I could contribute and how I could help. Some of the challenges was with relationships. I never knew how to do relationships from a young age. Um, the boyfriend-girlfriend thing. And, and that was something that uh, I really struggled with. And so I got physically sober was starting to live a spiritual life and you would hear recommendations. Don't get into a relationship in a year, focus on your recovery. And so for me, I figured that was advice for people that couldn't get into a relationship if they wanted to. (laughs) So I, I was still acting out impulsively in a compulsive way around relationships around, um, dating and this kind of stuff and so long story short I had stayed on the big island for the first two years of my sobriety that's where I went to treatment 
that's where I had my full surrender. And, and finally, after many attempts and many treatment centers, I, I stayed sober. I got the opportunity to move back to Maui and to have my daughter in my life and ended up having one of my daughters full time. And that was amazing. Ended up continuing to the work in the field of mental health and substance abuse, opening the treatment center on Maui. All these things were going really well in my life, but I still just didn't know how to be in a relationship. I didn't know how to not act like a teenager, to not habitually just try to hook up instead of learn how to love somebody, to learn how to nurture a relationship, to learn how to have an emotional, spiritual connection before a physical connection. What can I ask? So that got me into a lot of pain. um... And. Is that what did you notice that that was just towards women and romantic relationships or was that in friendships with men too? like was just the the um, um, like closeness or intimacy just hard for you in general? Mm-hmm. Or did you have like male intimacy was, like friendships? I had I had male relationships. So I did have connections and relationships with men in recovery that wasn't a challenge for me started to sponsor men had a good relationship with my sponsor and other people in the community so i did start to learn how to have friendships that were based on being of service to people being interested in people's lives being curious about their lives and what i could do to help um but the the, the relationship with women is what was the challenge and that and that stems from my childhood stuff Mm -hmm. and and so it was the inability to know how to connect in any meaningful way outside of just hooking up just just having sex right and so I would have this internal battle with myself so well I don't want to hook up with anybody unless I was interested in being in a relationship with them and then I would go against that because the opportunity would present itself. And I kept being confused. How do I keep ending up in these situations? Well, you're on three dating apps, right? You're yeah. messaging yeah. people on Instagram and Facebook. And every time there's an attractive woman around, you somehow end up trying to be close to her, right? And whether it's at a meeting or where, wherever, right? And so, and that's how I was since I was in middle school. it's like I'm operating with that same set of tools and I'm looking for connection and every time I hook up I'm left with an emptiness so I'm starting to feel the same way I did with drugs and alcohol like trying to escape this thing I'm looking for love I'm looking for connection and sex doesn't do it and I heard somebody tell me that sex is just drugs in a body right Sex is drugs in a body. And so I, I'm trying to seek this um, connection. And so that's that's what started the change for me was the pain of that. Yeah, it's like a feel good now moment. It's like, the you know, you want to press the easy mm-hmm. impulsive button right now. Uh, even if, you know, you're like, well, mm-hmm. what about me tomorrow? Is me, is, you know, Mariah tomorrow going to be proud of me for this? Or is she going to be sticking in you know in shame you know because we this goes mm-hmm. against what she said that she wanted you know and i totally relate how it's right. really it's like alcohol and drugs where it's all or nothing 
you know, either this person is nothing to me or I will like jump in bed with them. Like it's, it's all or nothing when you're kind of dysregulated. Right. And there's no boundaries and there's right. And, and so after that, and here I am at the time I'm preaching the 12 step gospel and I'm, you know, I'm spiritually on fire with this stuff, but then there's this other part of me that's empty and there's this other part of me that's in pain. And so I finally got to this point where, um, and I and I read about this in detail in the book, but I had met this gal um, at my grandfather's funeral. I had gone out to Oregon, and I met this gal and at a meeting. She's early in recovery. She's much younger than I was. And I make this connection with her, and we start to interact on social media. Maybe a year or so later. I said, hey, I'll fly you out to Maui. You can have a vacation out here. We'll hang out, blah, 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 blah. And she says, about three weeks before she gets here, she says, hey, I know you're sober. I see your posts. I just wanted to let you know that I'm not really that sober now, right? And and I said, oh, okay, well, how long have you been sober? Well, I've been going to these concerts and doing these other substances, but right now I've been sober for a couple of weeks this is a red flag right away. Like this is not somebody I should be you know, necessarily, but I say, Hey, it's fine because there's this other part of me that just wants to hook up and it's an attractive person. And this is this thing. And connecting and with. So, so I fly her out anyway. And, um, and we hang out and roll out all the red carpet and I'm doing this whole thing. And like three days into it, I'm noticing that she's not paying a whole lot of attention to me. She's spending a lot of time on her own iPhone. And I didn't know it at the time, but she's actually on her own dating app, like trying to (laughs) have these other uh, things going on. And so like on the third or the fourth day, she says, hey, you know, I'd like to go out and spend some time with some other people and to maybe have the day to myself. And I'm just like wow, like this rejection comes up, right? And and then after that, I'm seeing her Instagram story and she's out, out and about partying, hanging out with people. And I'm just, I don't know why, but that situation was just like devastating for me at the time. And I was already in this position from all of the other things that had happened, you know, years before that, leading up to that point. And I reached out to this other person that's in recovery. And I just said, listen, man, I'm going through so much pain right now. This is what's happened. And um, and I don't know what to do. And he says, let's get together. And we got together and he asked me if I had ever done a full thorough inventory just on relationships, just mm-hmm. on relationships with women. And I had done that a little bit when I had got sober, but it, I didn't go into great detail with it. So what we decided to do was, is from, from the day I got sober up until that point, which I was right about four or five years sober at the time, I think around four, I wrote down every hookup, every relationship that I had been in from the beginning, and I got to look at it in detail. What was the attraction? How did it happen? Who was involved? Was there, did people get hurt? Was there kids involved? Was anybody's reputation affected by this? What was the outcome of the situation? Who was harmed? What should you have done differently? And oh my gosh, like this this part of my recovery process was was just like, I don't want to hurt anybody anymore. What he pointed out was is the 
there was 12 people that I had been with during this four-year period. And he had said, the first 11 people with, you did the same thing this gal just did to you, right? You hooked up with them. It didn't work out. And you decided that it wasn't the right relationship for you. You didn't even consider their feelings, their children, their path, their trauma, what they've been through potentially. You just habitually and instinctually hooked up and decided it wasn't what you wanted to do. Now this gal does it to you and you're devastated. And I said, oh, geez, okay. And instinctually- Did you you see that right away or did you get defensive? No, I saw it. I I saw it when I, because I wrote it all down on paper first. And Mm -hmm. he had this assignment with those questions. Who was affected? What was the attraction? Was it just the surface, what we call the level one physical attraction? Or was there any emotional connection? Was there any spiritual connection? No, there wasn't. It was always just the physical thing. And so once I wrote that all down and there was a couple things that had happened there where it was like my reputation was impacted and there was kids involved and there was people that were hurt. And so I never really saw that at the time. Once I looked back, I looked at it and I go, oh my God. Now, he didn't tell me this, but at that time, I decided I'm going to take a year off. At that moment, I'm going to take a year off. And so I decided in my mind, so funny, I said, well, how am I going to do that? Okay, stop the dating apps, stop messaging people on Facebook, and stop approaching people in meetings or wherever. And so that's what I did. And that same feeling of like, the impulsivity to drink or to use a drug was the same thing. Like I would go to heart the thing on Facebook or to heart the Instagram post. Why are you doing that? Don't do that. Okay. Even if you send the message then you go, okay, I'm not going to send that message or I'm not going to respond to it. So it was this whole back and forth similar to my sobriety in the beginning where I had to have some discipline. It's almost painful to, I mean, it is, it's painful to rediscipline yourself. I think I relate a lot where it's, uh, you know, something that makes us feel good. It's that dopamine rush or whatever. And we're like, we're going to like mm-hmm. this picture or we're going to get this positive reinforcement from this one person um, or whatever. And just knowing that like, that isn't something that we're willing to engage in anymore because it's harming us more than it's helping us. It's super painful right. to be in that moment and want that validation or want that connection and intimacy. And then realize mm-hmm. that like, it's a fake connection anyway. So I'm, I, why, why do I keep on press, like putting my hand on the hot stove type mm-hmm. thing? That's a painful right. process. Yeah. Well, in particular, there's other people that are being hurt as well, right? So if you can't help people, well, please don't hurt them, right? So that was the, that was the challenge when I realized the pain that came from this gal rejecting me even though all the red flags were there and all of the indications that this wasn't the right situation, I did it anyway. And so I had to do that for about a year, a little over a year. Um, and I got to learn about myself. I started going to therapy and having to do some work around that. Cause nobody ever, it's like you said, disciplining yourself or I call it reparenting, yep. parenting yourself, parenting your inner child and, and, and if I wanted something like a connection that was meaningful, that had depth and love, I was going to have to start operating differently. And so I decided that I was not going to 
engage, have sex with somebody without being in love and whatever that means, right? And then I did, I met my wife a little over a year after that. And we've been together ever since. And so that was a little over four years ago. Wow. How does mm-hmm. any, how does any of like the, uh, that year of you doing therapy and um, really mm-hmm. trying to reframe how you were approaching just, I, th- I feel like it's just humanity, right? Like women, um, contrary to yep. some popular belief in our society, are people with feelings and emotions. And yep. so men, you know, I've, I've had this conversation totally. with several women in recovery as well, where like men are these things sure. that we can get things yep. from, you know? And so like, I think yep. in, on both sides, it can be, you know, we're essentially just using each other to get what we really, what makes us feel good in the moment, whether that be sex or money or drugs or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And so to, to reparent yeah. ourselves and, um, mm-hmm to go through that therapy and to start to recognize, well, if I'm not like grasping at somebody else to give me what it is that I'm seeking, then the answer must be in me. And I'm wondering Mm -hmm. how that year of therapy or that year of um, abstinence or celibacy or whatever, Mm -hmm. did you Mm -hmm. start to do Mm -hmm. your breath work training in that year or when did that start to come about? So I'll answer the first question. The objectification of women, the desire for sex, um, it had to be drastically revised and redirected. And so that was um, culturally grown up. The hip hop music with media, the way things were, it was all about this objectification and this hooking up and this whole player kind of vibe was was a culture that I grew up around. I met somebody in recovery that said something that changed my life. And he said, what kind of man would you want your daughter to one day marry? What kind of characteristics would you want that person to have? And I remember when I heard that, and this was even before I got sober. This was when I was going in and out of meetings. Um, and I thought, oh my gosh, like I want, I would want to have that type of character, that type of patience, that type of dis- uh, discipline, that type of trust, that type of faith, that type of presence and compassion and those things. And I was so far away from that. Right, I was so far away from that. But after being sober for four years, I had a different foundation to to stand on. And I started to have a real clear picture of what I needed to do. So the therapy allowed me to understand what I was doing with, with sex and with some of these impulsivities. Um, and so I just started to have consciousness around it. A lot of these things were unconscious, they're habitual. All of a sudden I start to become aware Mm -hmm. and I start to be able to have control over these urges because I know that it's not what I want anymore. And so that was, it was challenging, but at the same time, once I saw how much pain had, had, I had been involved in causing it was really clear to me that I wasn't going to be able to pretend to be this spiritual person and not be able to show up in that way. 
plus I have two daughters. So it was really creating this discrepancy internally. And so um, that's how I did that. Reached out to people to, to talk about it, talk about it in therapy and to really hold myself accountable. And it was just the right time. I firmly believe if I hadn't done that, I would probably not be here today in this way. I think that the next thing, and I've seen that with a lot of men, when they start to compromise their spiritual principles for things like financial gain or for things like acting out sexually, that soon after that, they will lose, they will lose their sobriety. And so I had to start to honor those parts of myself. And I've been doing that ever since. Um, interestingly enough, the breath work, I found breath work after I met Paulina. And we were we decided to do a 10-day silent meditation course together <laughs> wow. after we've been dating for after we've been dating for two months. <laughs> and uh, which my wife is uh, Buddhist Vietnamese. She was born in Southern California, but she's um, full Vietnamese and has, since she was young, followed Thich Nhat Hanh, who's a Buddhist Zen master, and her and her family have followed his teachings. And so for her, meditation practice and stuff was something she had been involved with in Plum Village and at Deer Park Monastery. And so she said, I'd love to go to the silent meditation course. And I went with, we went together, and it was the craziest thing to do with somebody that you're just starting to fall in love with and starting to have a relationship with we really put our relationship to the test and i'll share this little story i wrote about this in, in the book too but if you go to a 10-day silent meditation course they say if you make it through the third day that's the hump that you get over right mentally so many things start happening and people will talk themselves out of it they'll leave on the third day wow so even if you come with a partner or a friend, they ask you to honor the space with no eye contact. So you're supposed to have reverence for the space and create a space to where you're basically by yourself during this time. And I didn't know how seriously they were going to take that. And so they were serious. <laughs> and this guy that runs the retreat, this meditation course, He's this older gentleman, but he's a multimillionaire and it's on this $15 million property and there's this big tent shala thing and there's kind of these attractive people that are up front and then he's this little guru dude. And then the, there's probably 30 or 40 people and then we're in the back row as we're the, we're the, what they call the pilgrims, the new people. And so in my mind, I start to create this story that they're going to recruit my girlfriend to be a part of their meditation cult, right? He's an attractive gal. And so... I start to have these insecure feelings of jealousy. And now this coincides. Now, before this is the third day, before that, we've been kind of sneaking little looks at each other, right? Like, hey, love you, you know. And uh, apparently, one of the people that were helping run the course, they're all volunteers, but they had been involved in this stuff before. Mm -hmm. They approached Paulina, this, this, this guy, and he says, hey, I noticed that you and Nick are here together if you could please honor this space and not so much eye contact. Well, nobody told me, nobody said that's anything to me. So that third day I'm looking over at her and she's not looking back now. Right. And I think, Oh my God, they got her. <laughs> she said, you know, she's been, uh, she's been, you know, she's been corrupted by these people or something. 
And so this whole thing's going on in my head. And they had a few books that you could read at this retreat. And one of them was Eckhart Tolle's The Power of Now. Oh, perfect. So I'm reading this book while my mind is going crazy. And he talks in depth about the dysfunctional aspects of the mind and how we're categorizing, labeling, judging, and this mind just never shuts off. And here it is. My mind is just going crazy. We're in these little tents and I'm looking and peeking out of my tent to see if she's sneaking out somewhere and and who's over here. And and I'm just losing my mind, right? And so that third night I get through it and I fall asleep and I have a, uh, a lucid dream where I can completely keep in mind, we were meditating like six or seven hours a day. We're doing all this yoga and all this crazy stuff, breath work, where I learned the breath work. And that night I have a dream and I'm in the dream. I can totally wake up and I'm totally present and I can tell that I'm sleeping and I can come in and out of this sleep consciousness space. And it was profound. And I woke up in the, that morning and all of a sudden I could become the witness to this crazy, jealous thinking. And I start to laugh at myself. Good. Are you really think she's going to leave with this freaking little meditation cult, dude? Like, you really think she's in the tent hooking up with some, you're losing your mind. But then this is while I'm reading this book. And so the next day I'm like free. All of a sudden I broke out of this loop, right? And I'm free. And, um, and we're doing the breath work sessions and I'm starting to continue to just laugh at myself because it it will come back, right? All of a sudden it comes back like, well, what if, you know, she hasn't looked at you like, and then I'm giggling at myself. And all of a sudden I start to realize like the dysfunctional aspects of the mind and how my mind is always telling me these things. None of them are necessarily true. And so um, that was a big part of, of healing my past relationships and being able to be more present in our relationship and now our marriage was to just to get away from the ownership piece of like a marriage um yeah i, I was truth, gonna say like truly believe that almost to, like yeah to love somebody is, is is to true love true love makes somebody feel free more free Versus these attachments, right? And this yeah. possessiveness. I need who's to with the girl. And yeah. And so that was a big thing for me. And I was introduced to the breath work at that course and it blew my mind. We did a big breath work session and it was similar to a Wim Hof breathing session there. And, and it was like, I couldn't believe it. And all of a sudden, like my body was tingling and I felt this just like rush of energy. And we we're doing these breath holds. And then more breathing. And it was like I was holding my breath for a long period of time without having oxygen in my lungs. And I was just blown away by it. And, um, but we couldn't talk. So we weren't able to like process it. And uh, later on, after leaving that 10 day course, which was one of the most profound experiences of my life, um, being silent and also meditation and what happened with the insecurities around the relationships. And then I found the breath work and all this stuff. And so I continued, I found a YouTube video after the retreat, we could talk after, you know, the, the, the 10th day, they let you talk. And it was this big kind of party. And, and, um, and so I found 
some YouTube videos. And this is what started my journey into breath work. And so I always tell people getting sober was the most important thing that's happened in my life. And the second most important thing that's happened in my life was finding breath work. Um, breath has transformed everything in my life. Um, it's allowed me to create this book, create this new businesses, create um, this these relationships, and it's it's put me in touch with this this power that allows me to intentionally um, manifest and create these things that I've always wanted to be able to do, um, that I was always meant to do, yes. artistically create creatively like right when I started doing the breathwork it was wild like it triggered something inside of me that sparked this creative energy um and so I started doing more surfing I started doing more art with the music and then I started writing and so it literally coincided with 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 all of that this book started from that and it's interesting because I had just started doing it and and then I was like, I'm so into it. So I'm, I'm going online to get these um, different certifications and, and different videos and, and different classes online. This also, COVID started right at the same time. Of course. Like literally, yeah, literally, of, like when we went to that retreat was in like July of 2019. And, you know, COVID started whatever that was, December of 2020, right? Yeah. And so... And I just went full on into it. And I said, this is the missing piece. And I found out, I read several different books. James Nestor's book, Breath, changed my life. I read Wim Hof's book, changed my life. Um, just started studying and looking at things. And I found out that breath means spirit. Mm -hmm. The Latin word for spirit translates to breath, right? And so if we're looking for a spiritual awakening or you look at the 12-step community, they say the cure for addiction or alcoholism is a spiritual awakening, right? Well, what does that mean? Spiritual awakening is simply the state of having more consciousness and awareness than being lost in ruminating thought. Yeah, like I so said. Think about me at that 10-day course. <laughs> I am lost in that thought. This is jealous thoughts. This is crazy stuff, Right. Well, that's how addiction is too. We, we're replaying these stories over and over and they create the anxiety. They create the depression. They create all these things. Our nervous system's out of whack. Right. right? It's consistent. And, and, and so that's comfortable. Yeah, absolutely. And that's another thing that Eckhart Tolle talks about is that although our problems and our challenges are what have hurt us, that's also our identity. We identify as our problems because to your point, it's comfortable, right? Mm -hmm. I identify as the victim or, you know, I identify as the addict or the alcoholic or mm -hmm. this thing that is actually the problem. Right. And comfortable doesn't so, cozy. It just means predictable. And I know how to handle the situation sure. when I can predict what's going to happen. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's incredible. So, like the word aloha, it's a two-part word. It, 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 alo means the embodiment of God, the embodiment of spirit, the embodiment of life. It's a multiple meaning word, alo. 
And then the ha is the breath. Aha. So the aloha translates to the breath of life, which is the title of my book, or the mm. breath of God, or the breath of spirit. So when natives greet each other, they touch the forehead and exchange the breath, inhale and exhale, and they exchange the breath of God. That posture, that process is is all throughout the history of the world. I started to find out that in ancient Greek, the word pneuma means breath, soul, and spirit, right? In, in India, thousands of years ago, it's pranayama. It's the power of the breath to regulate life, to regulate your system. In China, they call it qigong. In, in Japan, it's a kiraki. And all throughout the history of the world, from uh, the Hebrew language, the word rua means breath, soul, and spirit. So I'm thinking to myself, like, we have to do this. Like, we need this. We want a spiritual life. We want consciousness yeah. to break out of this loop of addiction, to break out of this, this cycle of, of depression and anxiety. Think of, you're doing these big breathwork practices, and you're shifting things at the biochemical level. We store trauma and grief yeah. in, our, in, our, in our cells somatically. So these big breathwork practices, most people are breathing shallow through their mouth, which can actually trigger anxiety and panic and fear from our sympathetic nervous system. Shallow mouth breathing triggers a sympathetic response from our nervous system, which is our fight, flight, or freeze, right? Wow. Slow, slow, deep breath trigger our parasympathetic state, which is our rest and digest, which is calm. I have people that never knew this stuff right and they're shallow breathing all the time they've already got trauma and and unprocessed grief in their lives and their 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 whole life is is in this state of fear panic everything that's going on from covid to just everything and they're just a small step away from a panic attack and the way that they're breathing is actually affecting that yeah right and so what happens Go ahead. I just, it's not something that's taught. Like this isn't common knowledge, which I think is asinine mm-hmm. um, to, you know, like we are all like, you know, make sure that you are, you know, non-GMO and eating organic and all the things and like try to, but like we, we don't have a basic understanding of how our body stores trauma and how to relieve that through something that's free right. and simple. And that's, you hit it. It's free. Right. So when people have a panic attack or when they have anxiety, because I have two daughters, 21 and 16, and, and everybody has anxiety now, mm-hmm. right? where do they go? They go to the psychiatrist. Right. And it's interesting because, and I can share this one with you. I share it with a lot of people. It's really simple. It's called the 478 breathing method. And the 478 breathing method, and I write about it in the book, it's super simple. You basically, you, you let out all of your air and then you breathe in through your nose for four seconds and you expand your rib cage out and then you hold your breath for seven seconds. And after you hold your breath for seven seconds, you let out an elongated exhale from your mouth. So it's four seconds in, expanding, lifting up through the nose, holding for seven seconds. An elongated exhale from the mouth for eight. So that's four, seven, eight. Mm -hmm. In through the nose for four seconds, 
holding for seven, exhale for eight. It's powerful. This shifts right into that parasympathetic state. I've had people that have had phobias and fears of getting on airplanes and panic attacks, and, and this wipes it out. It's amazing. Similarly, it affects parts of your nervous system the same way that Xanax does, right? Weird. The same way that Valium does. So when these people end up in a psychiatrist's office, which happens all the time these days, you'll get a prescription for a drug, right? And, and, and that drug will help because it affects the nervous system the same way. The challenge is, is that it has side effects and it yeah. can be addictive. And we all know where that can go. And so, um, well, and those of us yeah, that, are, that are trying to recover from addiction, I've heard so many people in 12 step meetings and online and all different forms of recovery background um, talking about um, like being pro medication and being anti medication. And no matter mm -hmm. what, what conversation you get yourself into, I think it's inevitable that there's fear behind taking a, a drug that is prescribed or not prescribed. But when you're like, hey, this is actually what the issue was for me and what I'm scared of, you know, that's, mm -hmm. yeah, I I just, yeah, when I read that, you know, obviously you've written in a, a book on breath work and the, the way that it's changed your mm -hmm. recovery, I knew that I had to have you on the podcast. Yeah. Well, I'm so, I'm so happy about that. And, and it's, what we know, and I'm sure you're familiar with it, is, is that unprocessed grief and unprocessed trauma is really at the root of addiction for most people, right? And so if you think about anxiety and depression, it's the same thing. So anxiety and depression present, it's unprocessed grief and trauma that present as anxiety and depression, right? Mm -hmm. And then we medicate that with alcohol and some of these other substances. And then the cycle just continues. Or right? sex. <laughs> or, you know, or sex. Or, or no, sure. Eating yeah. disorders. Mm -hmm. um, all, all the stuff. All the stuff. So the breath allows us to come back to ourselves. So when we do these big breath work practices, people release. They say the big transformative conscious connected breath work session. It's, it's like two years worth of therapy in one hour right i mean you have these full-blown releases because if you think about people that stuff their emotions right i used to always think about that as just being a metaphor right but when you stuff your emotions and we never process and we never talk about it well they go somewhere yeah and somatically they usually sit in where we call the the junk drawer which is the lower abdomen the bottom of our respiratory system and our lungs at the bottom so when we start to do big belly diaphragmatic breaths it starts to that stuff starts to come up and it starts to come out and you're releasing and then you're discarding so it's actually going somewhere and then people can start to process and they can start to cry and they can start to release and it's so important for people to get in touch with those emotions because they are there but they're on a deep level. So when we, when we do the big breath work practices, they come right up to the surface and we can let them, we can let them out. And I think that's so important because it's not just about abstinence. It's about being able to heal and being able to remove these things. And there was a study that was done at the Stanford Research Institute by Emma Sapella. This was another motivation for me. Um, being so involved with the breath work and now writing the book and being a facilitator is that 
they did a study on Iraq and Afghanistan veterans there, and they used breathwork and yoga. And these are folks that had pretty acute PTSD symptoms, night terrors and panic and anxiety, all this stuff. The way we've been treating our veterans primarily has been with talk therapy and medication management, right? And we lose about 30 veterans a day to suicide. So they did this study and the results were found that the symptoms of the PTSD went away. And they reported that the yoga was great, but primarily it was the simple breathwork practices that they were able to apply to their life that created this shift, created this change. Wow. And I thought, oh my God, if these PTSD veterans are recovering and healing with breathwork, then what about all of us? What about all the people that struggle with, with these challenges that we have with substance abuse and mental health? And so that was... I've just been teaching it and practicing it for people. And the cool part about it is, is that the breath always works. Yes. It's not like here's hoping <laughs> some of these medications where it's, well, yeah. And, and it's, it's your own breath. Like your breath is this, your soul's fingerprint. It's yours. It's, it's completely you. You think about the plants, the ocean, nature produces oxygen. We breathe in the oxygen we let out the carbon dioxide. The carbon dioxide goes back into the plants and the trees, and that's what they breathe. And then they release the oxygen. So there's this whole dance that's happening through the breath. And we're so stuck in our minds that we miss it. We miss that we're all a part of this experience, right? And so the breath brings us back there. The breath brings us back to ourselves, and it allows us to connect in a really meaningful way and so i could talk about breath work forever and the importance of it and um we've been we i don't know if you're aware i'm sure you are but maui just had these terrible fires over here and so and thank you guys so much we've been doing free breath work sessions for people and my wife's a clinical therapist and she's i've been offering her ifs to people and it's just all, this is all new stuff that's been happening, but we've been holding breathwork journeys, 15 to 20 people at a time here. And and these are people that have been first responders and people that are on the front lines helping and serving. And, and they've just been having these profound releases and experiences and connecting the community. And, and the undeniable feeling is, is that we're all one, that we're all connected that there really is no separation and your pain is my pain and my pain is your pain and there is no us in them. Yeah. You don't ever have to do it alone. One. Yeah. 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 I am, you know, as I'm just so grateful that you both are able to help the community and the island of Maui. That's it's drastic. Um, I'm so sorry that you guys are processing through that. I'm so glad that you're there to help like guide others and like be there for any of the healing that needs to happen now. I'm wondering, it's wild. I mean, I could, I would never imagine. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I just could just never imagine that the breath could do be so powerful. It's, it's amazing. I, we do these big breath work sessions and then we do an in, uh, processing afterwards where people can integrate and share. And the stuff people say, it's unbelievable, right? Like, that's why a lot of people call it 
rebirthing because there's this rebirthing process with the, with the breathing. I had this one gal that shared that she's a mother and she had never felt the way she felt after the breathwork session, except for when she had her newborn baby on top of her chest and mm-hmm. she was able to breathe, right? I've had people report they lost families, they lost parents, and they actually had this visualization of the day that they were born and then growing up with their parent and they were healing this part of the resentment that they had for their parent. I mean, this, and I'm just sitting there and all I did was guide this breathwork session and I'm just like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm able to facilitate this. I can't believe that this is uh, this is happening. It's wild, but it's it's one of those things, like I don't know if you're familiar with the hero's journey, but sometimes we're called to do different things, right? It's the call to adventure. Mm-hmm. And so it's like you can hear it, like you can at the universe, you can hear it ringing almost like one of those old rotary phones, <laughs> right? And it's so clear. And then you got to answer the call, right? You have to answer the call. And so that's part of the hero's journey. And so that's what, yeah, it's been, it's been, a, it's been a, it's, it's been such an honor and a privilege to be a part of that and to say my wife and I do it together. She helps me with the breath work. She, we, 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 you know, ground people by touching their shoulders and touching their hands and just letting them know that they're okay. And put, put in, we call it angel touches mm-hmm. and people, cause people are going through a big experience and there's a lot of stuff. So when you're able to touch them, it's like, Oh, it brings them, it brings them back down. In fact, this one guy was sharing recently that he always had resentments with his mother before she passed and he was having this visualization of of being his mother creating him being birthed and right at that moment paulina had touched his shoulders and like on his chest just to kind of ground him and he just the tears just because it was the, the feminine touch so you get the masculine breath work facilitator me with my tattoos and, stuff. Mm-hmm. and then you get my wife that comes through and just grounds people with the feminine touch right so it's just it's just crazy that that actually leads a, a leads me up to my i guess my last question um for you i live sure. with anxiety um every day um it has mm-hmm. been a big part yeah. of my recovery journey trying to figure out my mental health and i know that i, I love that you put yeah. it that it's trauma and grief that has not been processed mm-hmm. um, properly or at all. And so that comes out as depression and anxiety, which I struggle with both. And I have mm-hmm. my whole life, as long as I've known life. Um, I wonder yeah. if, if I wanted to get into breath work, say like anybody that's listening in wanting mm-hmm. to start is going to YouTube yeah. or like checking out your website or anything. Would you recommend that or do mm-hmm. you recommend them being absolutely with a facilitator for their first time? Is it like scary? Um, well, so here's the thing. You can start doing the things like the four, seven, eight breathing right away. Mm-hmm. And um, that is, there's definitely YouTube videos for some of those. Those are like more of a down-regulating, right? So I consider those like anti-anxiety. Now, the big breathwork sessions are anti-anxiety as well, but you do need a facilitator. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a track. In my book, there's a QR code to it, and it's on Spotify, and it's also on Apple Music and YouTube and different digital platforms. That's the Breath of Life um, track that has four rounds of of breathing. It's stimulating. It's activating. Um, it's safe. It's it's safe to do 
on your own without a facilitator. And that's a 15 minute. Um, in the book, there's there's nine different practices. I would recommend the four, seven, eight right away with that nasal breathing. And we do have a website. It's breathoflife.recovery.org. Yep. And we have- I'm gonna share all this uh, in, Zoom. The, in the show sure. notes. Yeah. Sure. I'll share the links. Cool. Yeah, and we have Zoom, we have we have live Zoom breathwork sessions that we're doing every month with the with a larger um, conscious connected breathwork session. So we could collaborate on that. You could jump into one of those sessions as well. Um, That'd be so beautiful. And then, yes, yes, and I can send you the links for the Spotify and and the Apple Music as well. And then, um, but yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's imperative to practice breath work if you think about like from a 12-step perspective when they talk about you know the 11th step is is sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with the creator with the spirit well if you think the first thing we do when we come into this form as a little bitty baby is we take our first breath right first thing we do it gives us life we're breathing off mom before, and then we come out, we take a big breath, and we scream. Ah. Right, scream. Mm-hmm. The last thing that we'll ever do in this form, in this human experience, the duration of this form, is we'll take our last breath, right? Mm-hmm. So in between the first and the last breath, how we breathe will dictate the longevity and the quality of our life. So spiritually speaking, if you think back to that breath, soul, and spirit, the synonymous meaning throughout history. So if we're consciously connected to our breathing with our consciousness, with our awareness, then, then we're consciously connected to God. We're consciously connected to spirit, right? In a deeper place than our minds. So the breath is literally the key to consciousness. It's the key to awakening internally. And it's the key to living in a spiritual connected space. And so I think anybody can benefit from it. The younger, I have adolescents doing the breath work. I was teaching some breath work at my daughter's school. It's so important for these younger people to start to learn just to have some of these uh, tools, simple tools that you have right right inside of yourself. Right. And um, so, yeah, I mean, anywhere, there's so much information online. The thing about having a coach, it's like you can learn anything online, right? But about having a coach is somebody that can hold you accountable, somebody that can help you stick to it, right? 100%. So if you're able to, um, if you reach out to us, we can put you in, in, in touch with with some of these different programs or or potentially help hold people accountable. You know, if you're, if you're going to get on a Zoom group every week or every month, and stay involved and maybe do the breathwork track. A lot of people that we work with, they do the breathwork track on Spotify every morning. Yes. Right. And I'm it, so just, it just helps to reset and recharge. Yeah. I, I look forward to it too. Yeah. No, this has been really great. I I have thoroughly enjoyed. I, I've, I've also like learned a lot. And um, I think that I found sure. my, my next uh, method that I'll be diving into. I was just speaking with a girlfriend of mine on um, how we're holding each other accountable now um, to be moving forward. I'm going through like every single major change in my life, which is kicking up a lot of like insecurity mm. and anxiety. And it's it's a big, it's a lot of big changes. And I'm like, okay, 
How do I sure. keep myself sane and stable moving forward in my recovery and my life and my new career and all the things while I'm going through these changes? And mm-hmm. I'm excited to be using the breath work for that. So I just thank you for everything that you do. There's, we call it cosmic coincidences. Yeah. And there's no accidents. So I look forward to nurturing our connection and, and hopefully being a part of your journey in the future. Yeah, we'll connect more online. But um, yes, if you are listening, um, look in the show notes and grab the links and go and check out um, the Breathwork link on Spotify or Apple Music and, and check out the website. Thank you so much for being here. Right. Take care. Thank you. Okay. Aloha. Walk Small Talk is produced in partnership with Be Easy Marketing. It would mean so much if you took the time right now to follow the pod and give a five-star review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I'll see you guys here next week for another Big Talk topic. Until then, let's keep moving forward.